Good morning. It's a wonderful privilege to worship with you this morning, and I'm grateful for the invitation to open God's Word. We're going to be looking uh, this morning at 2 Kings, if you have your Bibles, or you can follow along in the bulletin. I'll be reading from 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 8. 2 Kings 4, starting at verse 8. Hear now the Word of God. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, and a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say to her, now see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord. O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, a servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so she arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and and told him, The child has not awakened. 
When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon the flesh of the, upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. And so he called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And then she picked up her son and went out. The grass withers and the flower fades. Man, would you please pray with me? Our God, we're so thankful for your word that in it we find life and light, for in it we find a revelation of your Son. Would you orient our hearts yet again to the greatness of our need and the greatness of your provision, that we might return to you all praise and laud and honor that you deserve. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our narrative opens with a rather sweet scene, doesn't it? And it's a scene that comes as a welcome respite. If you're familiar at all with the, the lives of Elijah and Elisha, you'll know that these prophets ministered at a time in Israel's history in which God's people were experiencing great turmoil. Uh, and Israel ha was experiencing years, really, of oppression, oppression from within. And they were experiencing years of wars from without. In addition, they were experiencing drought and famine. And these crises were not the result of national weakness, nor were they re the result of bad luck. Rather, Israel's turmoil was the direct result of her own wickedness, her own faithlessness, Israel's own forsaking of her God and the covenant that they had made with him. And from Israel's king on down to the, the, the people, Israel had by and large begun worshiping and serving the gods of the Canaanites, the Asherahs and the Baals. And in fact, the wickedness had gotten so bad in the land of Israel and the idolatry had become so rampant that at one point, you'll remember, the prophet Elijah despairs of life itself. He said, it's hopeless here. I am the only one who follows Yahweh. I'm the only one who believes and in his despair, he cries out to the Lord to take his life. Now, if you've ever felt like that on on Elijah's day, he felt hopeless. He felt alone. The reality was he was being a little dramatic. There were, in fact, 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to the Baals. But this reveals something of the character of the country, that the man of God, who undoubtedly would know other believers, felt so alone because of the faithlessness, the idolatry, the wickedness and rebellion 
against God and against his word. It's into this, this dark scene that we're given this wonderful, sweet story of a woman and her husband extending generous hospitality to Elisha. Elisha, you'll notice, is referred to as the man of God throughout most of our narrative. He's the man of God. And we're, we're told that this husband and this, this wife from Shunem take in this man of God. They open their home to him. Whenever he passes by, they feed him. They give him a room in their house that he can use when he's traveling. They furnish the room with a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp. And this was a day in which these, were, these would have been expensive items. Ikea hadn't made its way to, to Israel by this time. Elisha, for his part, returns the kindness to the woman. As God's mouthpiece, he speaks a word of blessing upon her, bestows God's blessing on her that she might, even in her old age and in her husband's old age, conceive a child and that that child would be a son and therefore an heir. And then it's into this sweet scene of generosity and kindness and joy uh, that we find an unspeakable tragedy. The young son of the faithful Shunammite woman dies, and it's shocking. It's heartbreaking. And we think, why? What good could possibly come of this? Why would God allow his faithful people to suffer? It's a question that the, the Shunammite woman asks. And it's a question that we ask. We ask in our lives so, so often, sometimes when we see tragedy in, in the world, when we hear of yet another terror attack or hear report of a natural disaster, floods, earthquakes, and we see such destruction and such ruin, we too ask the question, why? But perhaps it becomes more pressing when sorrow and tragedy touches our own lives and we experience loss, hardship, sadness. But what we see in our text this morning, brothers and sisters, is that God does not give this woman, nor does he give us the answer to the problem of evil. The answer to the question, why do the righteous suffer? What, why does tragedy happen? As one of my professors used to, to say, what would you do with such an answer anyway? How would such an answer even help? Rather, what God gives us is a revelation of what he's done about it, that ultimately God will overcome evil at the cross of Jesus Christ. The resolution, you see, is not a philosophical answer. It's not a piece of information that reveals to us some mystery, but rather it's a revelation. It's a revelation of God as the God of resurrection life, the God who can bring life out of death. And it serves as a call to us to have faith in this God. And these are really the two points I want to consider with you this morning. First is the, the, the life of resurrection faith. What does it look like? 
And then secondly, the God of resurrection life. So first, the life of resurrection faith. What does resurrection faith look like? What does it look like? The author to the, of the letter to the Hebrews in, in chapter 11, verse 35, says that by faith, women received back their dead by resurrection. And when he says this, he almost certainly has in mind the Shunammite woman from 2 Kings 4. And you see, the author of Hebrews is saying that what we see in this Shunammite woman is a, a portrait of what it means to have faith in God and what it means to live by faith in God. When she received her child back from the dead, it wasn't because of her good works. It wasn't because of her sacrifices for God and for his, his prophet. It wasn't for her religiosity. It was because of her faith. Think of how many times Jesus after performing a miracle of healing, would say something along the lines of, your faith has made you well. It's because of, of her faith. And what does this faith look like? When we consider the faith of this unnamed woman, we see not only what faith looks like, but we see also in part what, what living by faith doesn't look like. And what a life of faith doesn't look like is that, uh, this is a life free from suffering. There are, there are some so-called Christian preachers out there who would preach such a message that if you just have enough faith, if you just believe deeply enough from the bottom of your heart, then your life will be free from sickness, from disease, free from financial hardship, from worry, free from sadness. Now, I don't imagine this uh, health and wealth gospel is much of a problem in a, a reformed church like Cornerstone. But I would suggest that a somewhat softer version can make its way into even reformed churches. And that is the view that if you really have faith, if you really trust God from the bottom of your heart, then you will have joy in your heart all the time. You'll never be anxious. You'll never worry. You'll never doubt. You'll never be depressed. But notice the suffering that this woman experienced. Notice her worry and anxiety. Notice her doubt. Now, at first glance, it might seem that this, this Shunammite woman might not suffer much at all. After all, we're told that she's wealthy. And when Elisha asks if he can return her kindness through his connections with the king or with, with commanders of the army, she says in verse 31, I, I dwell among my people, which is a way uh, for her to say, I have everything I need. All the wealth and provision. She has at least extended family and the security that would come with having a family. However, when Elisha says to her, notice, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. The woman falls apart. She says, no. No, my Lord. O oh, man of God, do not lie to your servant. Do you see what's coming out here? She can't believe it. She's fearful that he might be playing a trick on her. And it should not be surprising to us that a woman at this time and in this culture would have suffered and suffered daily 
with a deep-seated longing for a child. And not only a child, but especially an heir. An heir who would be able to carry on the, the, the family name. This faithful woman would have lived for years with a great sadness that comes from being barren and childless. And it appears that she had given up hope of such a joy a very long time ago. And no doubt she would have been haunted with the question. The question of, am I barren because of something I've done? Was it some sin in my life? She probably would have carried this sadness with her quietly, but it would have been gnawing at her daily, no doubt. This Shunammite woman suffers. And she suffers not only the sadness of barrenness and unmet hopes and desire, but she experienced the perhaps even greater sadness in our, our narrative of losing a child. Uh, one day we're told this, this young boy experiences a, a heat stroke out in the fields with his father. He then spends the morning on his mother's lap and at noontime he dies. I'm sure that there is no greater grief that one can experience in this life than losing a child and of, of holding your child on your lap and watching his or her life ebb away and there's nothing you can do about it. Feelings of helplessness and of hopelessness. Her child dies in her arms. The Shunammite woman's life is marked by deep suffering and grief. That's what I want you to see. A life of faith is not a life that's free from suffering, nor is it a life that's free from confusion and at times bewilderment. Notice how the woman is, is shaken to her core by God's hard and mysterious providence that he would take her child from her. And she doesn't know why. She doesn't understand that after receiving a miracle child from God, why would God take this child away from her in his youth? It doesn't make sense. And you can hear something of the woman's exasperation, can't you, in verse 28. She seems to be choking back the hurt and the, the, the tears the anger and the frustration when she says to the prophet, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? You see what she's saying here is, this was not my idea. Right? This was not my idea. This was God's idea. I didn't ask for this. And she seems to be questioning Elisha's character, if not God's character. Worse than a a, a, a nasty joke that says she'll have a child when she, in fact, won't, is, in fact, receiving the blessing of the child, only to lose him. And so she's bewildered. But we also see that it's not only the woman, the Shunammite woman, who is confused here. Did you notice that Elisha, the man of God, the, the prophet, is also confused? When he says to Gehazi in verse 27, the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. This is a prophet. This is one who has stood in the counsel of God. This is the one 
to whom God speaks and through whom God speaks. And he is saying here that even I'm ignorant of what God is doing here. I don't understand it. Why did God let this happen? He doesn't know. I think we're given an important reminder here. Because Christians can, at times, come off like we have all the answers. That we know what God is up to. Why God is allowing something to happen. But what we see here is that faith doesn't necessarily have all the answers. We don't know why God has allowed this tragedy to befall this person or that person, this disaster to befall this country or that city. We don't know why God allows his people to be slaughtered in places like Syria and other places in the Middle East. We can't understand why God is allowing his church to suffer increased persecution, even even today in China, with our brothers and sisters being arrested and faithful pastors being persecuted. It seems like like the word of God is, is getting snuffed out. Why would God let that happen? To have faith in God does not mean We have all the answers. It does not mean we're able to plumb the depths of God's mysterious providence. But what we have here is a reminder. A reminder that Paul gives us so wonderfully in Romans chapter 11, where he's quoting Isaiah 40, saying, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And so we need to be careful, brothers and sisters. We need to be careful about speculating about what God is up to. You know, countless Christians have been been hurt by ill-chosen, well-meaning, but ill-chosen words, trying to encourage a, a mother who has miscarried or a grieving widow. At moments like these, we need to be able to acknowledge that sometimes we don't have any answers. And at times it's better to simply be silent. Uh, yesterday I was speaking on the book of Job. And Job's three friends, before they spoke, sat with him in silence for seven days. It's the best thing they did. It was all downhill after that. <laughs> or at times, even when we have to acknowledge that we don't have the answers, to be able to say the very few things that we know for sh- certain are true. To be able to say that God is good, even though we can't perhaps see it at the moment, to be able to say that God is good and can only do good. The life of faith, you see, is not a life that is free from suffering or from confusion. It's also not a life that's free from from weakness. You know, sometimes uh, Christians can, can... construe or portray the Christian life as a sort of continuous upward journey. A journey that moves from strength to strength, from victory to victory, with every day becoming better and better. But we see here that the Shunammite woman is weak. She's weak. Despite all of her wealth, she has no way of solving this problem. Have you ever been in this situation? Have you ever had that experience of feeling like I, I don't have the resources to solve this problem? And you cry out to God, not in your strength, but in your weakness. And you cry out for help. 
And so she turns to God. And she turns not in her strength, but in her weakness and need and desperation. And here we see the, something of the character of the life of faith. What does the life of, of faith look like? Well, what we see in this woman is that in and through her suffering, in and through her confusion, in and through her weakness, she persists in trusting God. She persists in trusting in his goodness, though she can't see it. She persists in trusting that he cares, though she doesn't feel it. She persists in believing that he even has the ability to do something about it, though she can't really imagine what. And what we, where we see her faith in particular is in her, her quickness in running to the prophet. Her husband calls to her and says, why will you go to the prophet today? This apparently was unusual, right? Was it wasn't a new moon or a Sabbath. Why are you going? And what does she say? She says, all is well. All right, you invited a, a Hebrew professor to speak, and so I wouldn't be, be uh, faithful to my calling if I didn't at least uh, give you one word of Hebrew. The, what she says to her, her, her husband is literally shalom. Just one word, shalom, often translated as, as peace. Right? And again, when she's confronted by Gehazi, verse 26, he says, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? What does she say? She says, shalom. Why does she say peace? Is she putting them off? Is she lying? Is she deceiving? I don't think it's, it's any of these. I think what we see in this, this expression, shalom, is this woman insisting on the goodness of God. Even when she is undoubtedly having a difficult time believing it herself. She is insisting that the God who she knows and who was good enough to give her a child could be trusted. And he could be trusted to make all things right. This is faith. In some way, in some form or fashion, she believed that God would be able to bring good out of this unspeakable tragedy. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, the author writes of the faith of numerous Old Testament saints and speaks in particular of Abraham, who you'll remember in Genesis 22 was commanded to kill his son Isaac. Isaac being a miracle child himself. Isaac also being the son of the promise, the one through whom God would bring blessings to the nation and crush the head of the serpent. Abraham is called to kill his own son, his beloved son, whom he loves. And we're told that Abraham, by faith, climbed that mountain. He climbed that mountain to offer up Isaac, believing that God was even able to raise him from the dead. And you'll remember that remarkably poignant scene in which Abraham... Abraham, Isaac asks his father, you know, we have the, the wood and the flint. You know, something's missing here, Dad. Where is the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? He says, the Lord will provide. I think 
the Shunammite woman utters her shalom in the same spirit. It is her way of insisting that God will provide some way, somehow, God will provide in the midst of her despair, heartbreak, and confusion. And so, brothers and sisters, in, in suffering and in confusion and weakness, what I want you to see is that faith doesn't run from God. It doesn't say God has disappointed me or I don't understand what God is up to, therefore I'm done with him. Faith runs to God. It's faith that believes that God can do what to our minds and to our experience seems to be impossible. This is what it means to live by faith. To believe that God's promises are so true that he's able to move hell and death in order to fulfill them. It means to wrestle with God as we try to make sense of our suffering and to cry out to God in our affliction and confusion and to cling to God in our weakness saying with the the Apostle Paul, let God be true and every man a liar. Or saying with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. The belief that God is so faithful, so reliable, so powerful that he is able even to raise the dead in order to accomplish his good purposes and to fulfill every one of his promises. This is not blind faith. This is not choosing to believe and persisting in believing despite evidence and despite reason without any foundation. Rather, what we see here is the call to submit all of our reason and all of our experience to what God has revealed about himself. Right? What does this this woman know about God? This Shunammite woman knows Yahweh to be a God of life. He's a God of life. This is what she would have had to cling on to, that she was part of a people who had been moved from death to life when they left Egypt. When they passed through the Red Sea, God delivered them from the bondage of slavery. This woman would have most likely also have heard about Elijah having raised the, the, the son of the widow of Zarephath. And of course, this woman certainly knew how God had revealed himself personally to her as the God who's able to bring life out of a barren womb. And so she knows this God. She's heard of how he's acted in the past and she's able to trust him to act for her in the future. Now, it is... <clears throat> Tempting for us, I think, to read this this story and to say to ourselves, well, she received her son back from the dead. God answered her cries of despair by restoring to her what she had lost. What about me? What about my father? What about my mother or husband or wife or child? Surely if God would do that for me, then it'd be easier for me to believe. What we need to remember, though, is that this child restored to life is only a sign. It's only a picture. It's only a foreshadow. And that this son would one day die again. And it's quite possible that this this mother's arms would once again be empty and her heart once again be broken. But what I want you to see is that this 
this son risen from the dead is a sign and a token of something much greater. He was, in effect, a promise that God will fulfill his promise to defeat even death itself. You see, this son who died and rose again only to die again was a shadow of the greater son who would come also through an extraordinary birth and who would suffer and succumb to the curse of death. And this other son who would also rise from the dead, but unlike this son, the son of God would never die, but he would live forever. And we see the fulfillment of this miracle, therefore, in Christ. It's a picture of Christ who would rise from the dead, and yet unlike this child, he would live forever. And so, brothers and sisters, what this means is we have a clearer picture. We've been, some, been given something much greater than a loved one brought back to life only to die again. You, we've been given a brother who has been brought back to life never to die again. We have a clearer picture. We have seen the promise fulfilled as we remember the cross, as we remember the empty tomb. No, it is true that we do not get to embrace Christ today. But we do have Christ's word of promise And we have a scrap of bread and a sip of wine as tokens, as as sacraments pointing us and assuring us that Christ's death and resurrection are true and that he will one day come again. And so the call, brothers and sisters, is to persist in faith to continue living by faith, clinging to Christ by faith, and the sure knowledge that he has indeed overcome death for us. And then secondly and finally and briefly, you never really believe a Presbyterian minister when he says briefly, do you? <laughs> I'll try to be brief. We, what do we make of this peculiar scene of Elisha lying on the child? Well, on the one hand, the author is here going to great lengths to emphasize that it wasn't Elisha who raised the child from the dead. It wasn't Elisha's will. It wasn't Elisha's word that raises his child. It's God's will. It's God's word. It's God's power. Elisha, we see, is just as bewildered as the woman. What's going on? What is is God up to here? If he first tries to make it right by sending his staff ahead of him by the hand of his servant Gehazi. Gehazi runs and places the staff on the child's face. Why the staff? Well, Moses, you'll remember, had a staff with which he struck the Nile, a symbol of God's power and judgment when it turned to blood. He also raised the staff over the Red Sea. It parted the waters. Perhaps Elisha's carrying on the prophetic ministry of Moses and so sends his staff to hopefully... Uh, express yet again something of the power and purposes of God. But we read that nothing happens. Then verse 32, Elisha and Gehazi enter the room and they pray and nothing happens. But then finally we're told in verse 34 that Elisha goes up to the, the bed and he lays on the child. We're told putting mouth to his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands And there has been a lot of speculation, as you could imagine, about what is going on here. 
I think what we see going on in this peculiar action, prophetic action, is that by laying on the child mouth to mouth and eyes to eyes and hands to hand, the prophet as the representative of God is identifying himself with the child in his death. He is identifying himself with the child as the one who has entered the realm of the dead. And since breathes and sees and gives strength to the hands, this action, I want you to remember, would have had serious ramifications for the prophet. Uh, the touching of a dead body in ancient Israel was no small matter. It would have rendered the prophet unclean. And so he would have to undergo a series of, of washings and sacrifices before he could yet again enter into the worship of of Yahweh. Why? Why? Why these laws? Well, this was a constant reminder to Israel that their God, Yahweh, is the God of the living and not the dead. He has, in fact, nothing to do with the realm of the dead. And anyone who has come into contact with that that realm of the dead had to be cleansed, had to be purified before he or she could could again enter into the presence of the God of life. And so touching this body would have rendered the prophet unclean. And what he is saying, therefore, in effect, is I am willing. I am willing to become unclean so that this child might live again. And notice that he doesn't just touch the body. He lies on the body completely and fully, saying, in effect, that I am willing to completely identify with this child in his death and the hopes that he might live And in doing this, we see that he anticipates the ministry of the greater prophet, Jesus, whose life was lived as a life of identification with sinful humanity in our death. You'll remember, certainly, when Jesus heeds the call of the prophet John the Baptist, going out with all of of Judea and Jerusalem Uh, to undergo a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus comes to John. And John says, do you come to me? I need to be baptized by you. And what does Jesus say? He says, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, you see, understood that in order for him to fulfill his mission, though himself perfect and spotless and pure and holy, nevertheless needed to identify with sinful humanity. And it's in his baptism that he identifies with those, all those, like you and me, who sin and are in need of forgiveness. He says, in essence, Father, count me in all of my sinlessness and in all of my perfection. Count me as one of these. And the Father responds to his Son, tearing open the heavens, right, with this Uh, the spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove and with this pronouncement, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus' miracles bear this same message. You know, Jesus heals people and we know from some accounts that he's, he's able to heal people from a distance. You'll remember the 10 lepers who cry to him from a distance and he heals them from a distance as they're, they're going to the priest Yet at other times, we're told, somewhat surprisingly, that Jesus reaches out and he touches those who are sick and he touches those who are diseased. 
And Mark, Mark in chapter one tells us of a leper who came to Jesus and fell before him and says, and says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, we're told, stretched out his hand and touched him. He says to him, I will be clean. Why would Jesus do this? Why in Luke 7, in a scene that really quite closely parallels the account before us this morning, Jesus, we're told, has compassion on the women of Nain. And he goes up to the, the coffin and he touches it. He doesn't need to touch it. This would have rendered Jesus ritually unclean. And Jesus does this to give us a picture. To give us a picture of his willingness to become unclean, his willingness to become not just ceremonially unclean, not just ritually unclean, but actually really and truly unclean. The pure becoming impure. The holy becoming defiled as he hangs on a Roman cross. You'll remember the law says, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus is willing to become unclean to make sinners like you and me clean. And what the Shunammite woman receives, therefore, is a picture, something of a picture of the gospel. That the man of God would conquer death itself by submitting to death itself and so imparting his life to all who believe. What's interesting, and I think encouraging, is that both in 1 Kings 4 and in Luke chapter 7, we're given a short notice. The notice that the prophet gives the child to his mother. Right? This action, I think, is also a sign. It's a sign of the Lord restoring to his people what has been lost. Uh, perhaps you're, you're familiar with the words of that wonderful hymn, Be Still My Soul, in which we sing, Be Still My Soul. Thy Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. This is the picture here. That God will, in some way, he will restore in Christ all that we have lost. All that we suffer in this life. All the sadness and the sorrow. Jesus has in his own fullness, in the fullness of his own resurrection life, the ability to restore to his people and to restore a thousandfold. And so loss and sorrow, brothers and sisters, is not the end, but rather the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things in such a way that in glory, there will not be even the slightest sense that something is missing, that life could be better, that our joy could be more complete. The fullness of joy will be experienced when we enter into glory through this risen Christ. And then we will be able to share the confession of all the saints that our God has indeed done all things well. And so, brothers and sisters, may we live lives of resurrection faith because we have faith in the God of resurrection life. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful gospel portrait uh, painted so brilliantly 
for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Thank you for what it teaches us of the greater prophet who's willing to identify with us in all of our sin and sorrow and yet bring us out by the power of his resurrection life, bring us out into a new life of resurrection glory. Would you grant us an eternal perspective on all of the hardships and difficulties in this life? And would you work in us a deeper longing for glory as we look forward to our heavenly home? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.